Yes, we're back with another episode of Best Case Ever, the mini podcast series as part of EM Cases. My name is Dr. Rajiv Thavanathan, and here with me today is Dr. Peter Reardon. He's a fifth-year resident in the emergency medicine program here at the University of Ottawa, and he's completing a fellowship in intensive care with an interest in both airway management and thrombosis medicine. So as a result, he's had some exposure to some interesting critical care cases. And full disclosure, Pete also happens to be a co-resident of mine, and is just an all-around great guy. So welcome, Pete, to the show. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Rajiv. No problem. You're here to tell us about your best case ever. Why don't you hit me with what you got? Yeah, so this case happened to me while rotating through the ICU as a fellow, and I was doing my pre-rounds in the morning, and the senior resident comes running up. And this is a guy who does not get rattled about anything, so immediately he has my full attention. And he tells me that he gets a stat consult from the emergency, and there's a young patient there who uh, has had a seizure, has a very high lactate, and is acidemic, and he needs an ICU fellow or staff stat. That's a really bad prognostic sign when the emergency doc is requesting for the staff right away. Yeah, this is like the moment where, you know, I don't need my coffee anymore because my heart rate's gone up 30, 40 beats. <laughs> okay, so you you run down to emerge. Yeah, so we're, we're walking down and talking about potential uh, differential. I mean, you know, sometimes it's not uncommon for seizures to have acidemia transiently and, and lactates that come and go. And so we're talking about that and the physiology and, you know, potential for other causes. But we walk into the recess bay and immediately recognize that this is not that straightforward. And so there's three or four nurses working on the patient. There's chest compressions ongoing. And the emerge doc turns to us and starts to tell us more about the case. And apparently in the interval, the patient has arrested three times, has been intubated, lined up. And they had originally come in with altered level of consciousness. Vitals were completely rock solid. And so it was just waiting for a bed in, in the emergent section, but then had a seizure and complete circulatory collapse. So we pause compressions and the patient has narrow complex tachycardia rate about 130. Uh, pressure is 70 over 45, but palpable. Um, SATs are 100% because FiO2 is cranked and uh, has been afebrile with, with the medics. We hadn't rechecked the temperature. Okay, so you, you finally got ROSC on this like really sick patient. Uh, had they managed to get an ECG yet at this point? Yeah, and so uh, we, we hadn't had time to do the ECG in the department, but the paramedics had a 12 lead, which was remarkably normal. I mean, sinus tachycardia, but no STEMI on there, no right heart strain, nothing to really help us in terms of the differential. Okay, and did you get any more of a story from the eMERGE doc? Yeah, there was, there was not really much to go on. Things happened so fast. Um, he had walked into the recess bay to, you know, the seizure and, and, and the arrest. And so he handed over care and in fact, went to go speak with the family to try and get some more history. And so for us, then we, we went to work. So almost immediately we put the ultrasound on to, to have a look in the left side of the heart, although not completely down, didn't seem to be functioning normally. And the right side, similarly, was not perfect. So just like a non-specific, mild biventricular Yeah, yeah, it, did, it didn't really seem to be more one or the other, because I was expecting to see, you know, if this is a young patient and this is PE that caused her to arrest, we're going to see a big D sign or, you know, big generous RV. But, uh, you know, we really saw kind of both ventricles being affected. So we then carried on. IVC was, in fact, quite large, definitely over two centimeters and wasn't moving with respiration. But the rest of the exam was 
fairly un- unremarkable. So there's no free fluid in the abdomen. Lungs were clear. Aorta was small. I love that you scanned an aorta in like a young 30-year-old woman, just, <laughs> just in case. Maybe that's the problem, right? It's in the algorithm, man. You got to follow it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, some of the blood work started to come back to help us out. Um, the pH, 6.7. Lactate was 14. Bicarb was less than 10. So really, this patient was very sick. Um, the CBC was was interesting. In fact, the hemoglobin was 62 we did know from the paramedics that she had a past history of anemia and looked microcytic. MCV was 68. And so perhaps this was chronic. I mean, the IVC looks large. So would this be hemorrhagic shock? It'd, you know, it'd be a bit unlikely in that picture. So what's topping your differential right now? Like, what does it look like? I know this is a relatively undifferentiated case, but you must have some thoughts. Well, gosh, I mean, at this point, we're thinking there, there's nothing really that's popping out as number one. I mean, young female, previously healthy. So we don't have any history of trauma. Could this be tox given the biventricular failure and complete circulatory collapse? It's definitely possible. Um, With that low hemoglobin, you know, you have to think about things like ruptured ectopic or perforated peptic ulcer for some reason. And of course, you know, with narrow complex PEA arrest, thinking about PE didn't seem to be a STEMI. So MI is kind of further down the list. But differential, definitely very broad at this point. So what are her vitals doing now? Like, is she stabilizing a little bit? So this happened very quickly. So vitals hadn't changed too much. But it really pointed us in the direction of what to do with the resuscitation. So she received two liters of crystalloid. We know that the IVC is generous. So we did call for blood given the hemoglobin was low. From that point, it's about stabilizing. So titrating up pressors. And because of her extreme acidemia, we gave her two amps of bicarb and then started an infusion and some calcium for for inotropy for what it's worth. And what pressures is she on at this point? So at this point, she'd been started on levofed, which we uptitrated quite quickly. And given her pressure was so low, we added vasopressin. But, you know, she did have that biventricular dysfunction. And so we wanted something with a little bit more squeeze. And so we started uh, low-dose epinephrine that was quickly titrated up to uh, pretty decent doses. We, we chose that because we wanted some more, some more alpha, some more squeeze than, say, dobutamine or melrinone. So at this point, she's on triple pressors. She's still pretty hypotensive. What's your next move with her? So I think with this patient, she's sick, differential's broad, and we really need more information. And although there's still some labs pending, we thought we really needed a CT. And so given the the seizure that she had, we wanted a CT head to look for any sort of intracranial event, CT chest to rule out PE, and CT abdomen given the low hemoglobin and potential for intra-abdominal catastrophe. So really the true pan scan, but we didn't have much else to go on. It just sounds like such a dicey proposition. It's like everyone's nightmare is sending someone like this to CT. Was she stable enough to go to the scanner? Yeah, and and I think at that point you have to there's there's so many considerations, but the three main ones is she stable enough? What's the clinical trajectory? And how is it really going to change your management? And for us we thought that the big thing that could change our management is if there's anything intra-abdominal that we can embolize or possibly have a surgical opinion or with the CT chest. I mean, certainly if there's a PE we can give lytics. So those were big things that could change it and over the course of that evaluation, that discussion, she'd been fairly stable for the last 10 minutes. And so we decided that we needed to go for it. Plus, I guess you can't really give the lytics if she's bleeding in her head or bleeding in her belly somewhere. 
That's it. Absolutely. Especially with that hard evidence. I mean, you've had a seizure, you've had altered LOC. So if you're going to give a lytics, you need to think about those contraindications. So you send her off to CT by herself with just a porter or what'd you do next? <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely not. You know, th- this is the patient. We, we had a lot of CTs in the emergency department without thinking about it, but this patient is not stable enough to go by themselves and it really needs careful planning. And so we wanted to get all our ducks in a row. We made sure that the ICU was ready for us, had a bed for us, and as well that the CT scan was ready because we didn't want to have any delay in the hallway just waiting. And with that, uh, we also need to prepare for the worst. And so we had a great team. We had uh, two experienced eMERGE nurses that came with us. We had ACLS medications and push dose pressors ready to go. And so then we head down to CT. One of the things I didn't realize was that the sequence of CTs really depends on on what you order, right? So the non-contrast CT head is going to go first, and then the CT abdomen and the CT with PE protocol is really going to go last in terms of timing of contrast. And so the CT head was done first, nothing really remarkable there on first look. The CT abdomen was kind of interesting because the radiology was res- uh, resident was there with me, and we looked at it and thought there may be some fluid in the retroperitoneum. Uh, which was concerning for sure. And when you say fluid, do you mean blood? That's got to be on your mind, right? In terms of the differential. But we really didn't know at this point. And while you're standing there beside the scanner, it's such a quick look. And then last for the CT chest, the arms have to go up over the head and we had so many infusions running. And so I went in to check on her as as the nurses in the in the CT tech were preparing the patient. And I looked down and I was quite worried because we had a pressure usually between 100, uh, 110 systolic with all of the pressors running. And she started to drop into the low 80s. And so I gave a dose of 20 mics of epinephrine, crossed my fingers and, and recycled the blood pressure. And in fact, it came back lower. And so, you know, my heart started to sink. I was really worried. And I felt like we really, we really needed this scan. Pushed uh, 100 mics of epinephrine. And then she started to bratty down and she arrested. So now you've got a patient who's arrested outside an eMERGE or resuscitation area. Did someone think about calling like a code blue? So this is the nightmare situation, right? Nobody wants to run a code in a CT scan, but we had brought all the drugs with us. We were all prepared for it. And so just as we were going over the next steps, we hear overhead code blue CT scan and you're just thinking, oh man, this is going to be absolute mayhem. This is 8.30 in the morning with, you know, in a tertiary care hospital. And so we had all of a sudden every medical student, resident, the entire radiology department busting into this tiny room with the CT scan. And so you just had to step back and try and command the situation. So very loud, clear voice. And again, you know, my team knew exactly what, what we needed to do. We knew this patient needed bolus of epinephrine, get onto the stretcher, get some chest compressions and get down to the ICU. So we just stated that very loud and clear. And so we swiftly make our way down the hall to the ICU. And as the patient's getting settled, the pulse had actually come back on the way. She got Rosk again with the epinephrine. And uh, the emergency physician who had, who had consulted uh, originally came in and actually had some more history for us. And apparently uh, this patient had been short of breath for the last day and had three fainting episodes at home. And so 
this was a huge bomb drop. I mean, all of a sudden you go from this very broad differential and you get this history that says respiratory distress for 24 hours, three syncopal events. And we're thinking, geez, like this is probably a pulmonary embolism. Yeah, it's smelling more and more like a PE, but you're still kind of stuck, right? Like, didn't you say that the radiologist was worried about maybe fluid or bleeding in the retroperitoneum? Yeah, definitely a sticky situation because, yeah, PE, as, as you say, is top of the differential and all you want to do is give this patient lytics. But we had a low hemoglobin, we had this question about fluid, and uh, so it really made, made things tough. But in the midst of this discussion, she arrests and uh, we decided we had to pull the trigger. And so we gave 50 milligrams of TPA. Now, during the course of this resuscitation, we get a phone call and uh, the staff radiologist calls back and says that, in fact, the fluid in the retroperitoneum looked more like fluid and less and less like blood, which, which helped reassure us for sure. And lo and behold, over the next two hours, all pressors completely melted away. Whoa, are you serious? Like she actually went from being hypotensive on three or four pressors to being completely normotensive within like two hours? It was absolutely incredible. I don't think I've ever seen a response like that. And if there was any doubt about the diagnosis, that just completely disappeared because she responded so, so well. So from there, she stabilized over the next few hours. Stabilized to the point where we sent her back to the CT scanner and lo and behold, there was a small saddle embolus and a very large amount of clot burden bilaterally in, in both lungs. So really cinched that diagnosis for us. And further to that, uh, the CT abdomen showed that there was a large IVC clot and a clot in the right renal vein. So we carried on with supportive care. And in fact, that afternoon, she started reaching for the tube. And it was such a relief for us because this patient had arrested so many times. And it has to be on your mind that what's the brain doing underneath all that? And how is she going to be neurologically? But, you know, she starts making purposeful movements and reaching for things. And we actually have to, you know, put on some sedation. And so that was such a huge moment for us. Wow, that is really incredible. Did she, did she have any deficits at all, neurodeficits, or even like pulmonary hypertension or something? Any consequence of this? So this case was so remarkable. She was extubated post-admission day one to the ICU, completely neurologically intact, talking to us, to her family members. And in fact, she walked out of the hospital on day seven with no neurodeficits. That's like a real... Legit big save. So Pete, when you think about this case and you reflect on it, like what are some of the things that you would do differently next time or that you took away from it? So I think there was a lot of things I, I learned during this case. The first being that the history was so, so crucial the differential was so broad in the beginning and you know oftentimes the patient is very sick and you don't have time to take that full history you really have to focus on the resuscitation but you can't forget to go back really um, with that extra history after that we had of the respiratory distress the syncopal events put pe to the top of the list and really empowered us to administer the the thrombolytics so i think the history piece again even in those uh, big resuscitations is so crucial the second thing I learned was about preparation for transport. And I think this applies whether you're going to transport a patient outside of your institution or even down the hall. Like for us, it was CT. And really to make sure that you have everything prepared. And so whether that be you going with the patient or sending the right personnel, 
making sure you have the right equipment, medications, just in case you have any unforeseen events um, in terms of airway or circulation. And the last is really rehearsing everything with your team so that everybody's on the same page. You know, if things go awry, what are we going to do? What are the next steps? And I think that was crucial in our case too, because, you know, our worst fear came true and the patient arrested in the scanner. But what made things go so smoothly after is that we all knew exactly what our roles were and what we were going to do going forward. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, like teamwork and preparation seem to be a really common theme in a lot of these best case evers. Now, just getting back to your specific case, the decision to give Lytic seemed like a real TSN turning point for this patient. Since the case, have you thought about it much? I mean, has your thinking about thrombolytics changed? Yeah, and so that was a really key point to the case. I think there's a few situations in emergency medicine where we need to know the dose route of of the medication cold so that we have that in our back pocket. And uh, similar to epinephrine for anaphylaxis, I think lytics is, is one of those situations. So let's talk about that then. You know, if I was to have to get this exact patient tomorrow, what dose should I give? And is there any reason I should give TPA instead of TNK? Whichever way you decide to approach it, you need to know your own approach hard and fast. And for me, two of those situations would be systemic thrombolysis in arrest and with massive PE, because of course, those are things that we can control. And so if the patient arrests, it depends if you're a, a TNK center or a TPA center. At our center, we use TPA and the AHA would recommend 50 milligrams as a bolus. And then you can repeat that um, in 15 minutes if you don't have ROSC. For massive pulmonary embolism, the typical regimen would be 100 milligrams over two hours. Now, if you're TNK, both situations is going to be a weight-based dose of 30 to 50 milligrams. It's interesting that, you know, TNK we use more frequently, at least at our center, in cardiac arrest or for uh, myocardial infarction. It's uh, it's more fibrin-specific and has a longer half-life, so you always give it as a bolus. Um, but uh, probably for historical reasons and because most of the literature is on TPA, that's what we give on in, in our uh, pulmonary embolism patients. So it might be a little different hospital to hospital. Uh, you also mentioned uh, something called half-dose lytics or reduced-dose thrombolytics or RDT. Uh, do you want to maybe expand on that a little bit for listeners that haven't heard of that before? Yeah, so there's been uh, a, a lot of study on this in, in the recent years and a lot of discussion in the FOMED world. Uh, with the general idea being that if we can have all the effect of thrombolytics, uh, but with reduced bleeding complications, which is which is the big fear, right? Um, then perhaps uh, decreasing the dose would be in our favor. And the the studies, although preliminary and small, would would support that. That it seems that we're having reductions in pulmonary pressures and RV strain that are equal uh, between the fifty milligram and and hundred hundred milligram doses, which would be the typical for your. For, for your TPA is a half and a full dose, um, but with less bleeding complications. So although the literature is far from definitive and we definitely need more uh, dose-finding studies, uh, it's it's promising and definitely something to look for in, in, in the future. Right, so maybe not prime time just yet, but uh, probably real soon. Any other major takeaways from this case, That you, any learning points you want the listeners to take home? One other really important point is just talking about futility of arrests and how long we want to run arrests. And in this case, she arrested multiple times and looking at her blood work biochemically, she was so sick. But, uh, you know, in this case, we had a great outcome. We had the best outcome. 
And so I, I think in some cases we can get jaded by all of the uh, bad arrests that we run, no ROSC or um, the patient does very poorly. But in this case, and in some cases where you have young, healthy patients, it really pays to run that arrest longer, figure out what you can do and how you can help this patient. I think that's a great note to end on. Pete, thanks so much for coming by and spending the time to talk to me today. Uh, Myself and Anton, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Rajiv. And for the rest of you, thanks so much for listening. Uh, Tune in next time for your best case ever. I'm your host, Dr. Rajiv Thavanathan. Make sure to follow me on Twitter. That's at Rajiv Thava. That's at R-A-J-I-V-T-H-A-V-A. And until next time, keep your stick on the ice. (laughs) 